like to introduce our guest uh, speaker this morning, uh, Jeff Campa, and his wife Amy is here. Um, Jeff's biggest claim to fame, I am reading this too, by the way, Jeff's biggest claim to fame is he sat and walked beside Pastor Matt as they graduated from seminary together. See, look, I have a picture. So. Uh, Jeff is now an assistant professor of Bible and theology for Calvary University and is currently Calvary's vice president and strategic initiatives working out of Calvary's fledgling uh, campus in Fort Morgan. Uh, Jeff also serves as a U.S. Army Reserve Chaplain with the 244th Expeditionary Combat Aviation Brigade. Please welcome Jeff Campa. Graham, thank you. Well, good morning, and thank you for uh, letting my wife and I join you on this day of celebration. Uh, Half the crew, maybe not half, is celebrating the wedding. Um, at a distance. Uh, We're here to celebrate the fellowship and time around God's Word this morning uh, and celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. And then I understand celebrate lunch together. Uh, So it's it's quite a full day. Um, So my my claim to fame isn't just walking and sitting next to Matt at graduation. I sat next to him for most of four years through our seminary time. Uh, So during that time, um, if, if you may be able to imagine uh, difficult and, and grueling, you know, days and hours uh, through class and through homework. Uh, but Matt was a, a, a tremendous encouragement uh, as a classmate to uh, study together with, uh, to work through projects, to critique each other through that process. So I appreciate his ministry to me, uh, even if he didn't realize it, and it wasn't maybe as an intentional as you think a pastoral ministry would be. Uh, but sitting next to him in class and listening to him interact with the Word uh, during that time uh, was an encouragement to me. So now Calvary University has sent me up to Fort Morgan to keep an eye on him. I'm close enough to keep an eye on him, but not close enough that it's obvious, you know, being about two hours away. So that's why we've planted this campus in Fort Morgan, Colorado, just to come up and keep an eye on Pastor Matt from a distance. So I'm here today. He's not, so you can share with me what you need to, um, and I'll take that back to campus. But no, seriously, we're, we're grateful to be here. We're grateful that God has repositioned Amy and I to Colorado. Uh, We're getting used to the part of Colorado that doesn't know if it's Colorado, Nebraska, or Kansas. Uh, So we're we're trying to adjust to that as well, Uh, but we're excited to be part of what God's doing there and excited to be with you this morning. We're going to take a look at a passage in John chapter 4 this morning. Um, And if I were to give you a a title for this section that we're going to deal with, that we're going to look at and investigate, I would say it would be Excuses, Excuses. Because we're going to look at a series of excuses uh, that are presented and then addressed in this chapter. But before we lead to that series of excuses, I want to ask you a question that might set the stage a little bit to help us understand the context and the setting here in John chapter 4. So when was the last time you were in a very awkward conversation that you were trying desperately to get out of, to end it, to escape it? Uh, to, to find an answer for it. When was that last time? It may have been this morning with family. It may have been with somebody here. It may have been this week at work or in a school-type setting, wherever you are. When was that last time you were in a very awkward conversation that you would have done anything to escape from? That's kind of the setting in John chapter 4, this awkward conversation that we'll look at between Christ 
and this woman of Samaria when they meet at the well. And it's not much different than conversations we may face today. We'll look at the book, this chapter in John, but in the broader context of why John wrote the book, why, cha- why this uh, record is included from chapter 4, because John wrote, everything was written. I'm reading from John chapter 20, verse 31. So I'm kind of giving you a spoiler alert, and then we'll back up to chapter 4. But the author says, These things were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So that's why John wrote all that he wrote. That's why John wrote chapter 4, that we may see Christ for who he is. And after seeing Christ for who he is, we could believe and through that faith have eternal life based on the completed work of Christ that we'll celebrate here in a little bit. So that's the broader context for the book of John, the gospel. But then let's think about why chapter 4 is written, for that same reason. And we'll see this woman, her change in life, and others as well. So how in an awkward conversation that is awkward because of cultural, racial, and gender issues, just like we face today, but through Christ's persistence and truth and love in engaging this woman in conversation and not putting up with her excuses that she, she places out in front of Christ through this conversation, we see her and really the, the majority of an entire village come to faith in Christ uh, because of Christ's love, his patience, his mercy, and his grace through that process. So we come to this awkward conversation and for us, from a distance, now having the completed book of John, we say, well, how could this be so awkward? Doesn't she know who Christ is? Well, we get to see that because we get to see chapters 1, 2, and 3. She didn't have that benefit. She did not have John's public, John the baptizer, John the Baptist's public proclamation in chapter 1 where he introduced Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Samaritan woman had an awkward conversation because she didn't know who Christ was because she wasn't there in Galilee in chapter 2 when Philip told Nathanael he'd found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. She didn't make that connection. She didn't have that background. Talking about weddings, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 didn't have an invitation to the wedding at Cana recorded in chapter 2 where she saw the miracle of water to wine. Where, where we know that this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. She wasn't there for that. She was certainly not in Jerusalem when after clearing the temple, when Christ, after clearing the temple of pragmatism and convenience, challenged the Pharisees that if you destroy this temple, referring to his body, In three days, I will build it up again. I will raise it up. She did not accompany Nicodemus to visit Christ in chapter 3 and learn that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Nor was she in Judea when John the Baptist again taught his disciples that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, this is what makes this conversation she had with Christ in chapter 4 so awkward. She didn't have the context that we just reviewed. So without that context, without that knowledge of the person and work of Christ, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 was trapped in the trivial. She was trapped in trivial things, trapped in a trivial mindset. But Christ, through his love and mercy and grace, reaches to her and taught her the value of eternity and to focus on eternity rather than these trivial things. So because she was trapped in the trivial, she led this encounter with Christ and made this conversation awkward through a series of excuses. We can watch her growth through what started as that initial awkward conversation and ends with her faith and really a significant portion of a village coming to faith in Christ pre-death, burial, and resurrection. So let's jump in and see this build in chapter 4. So I'm going to start reading in John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee, again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was about noon. So chapter 4 starts with some drama, and it will get better from there. But it opens with tension between Christ and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the dominant force other than the Roman occupation. The Pharisees were the dominant religious and cultural force uh, in Israel's culture at the time. And it says, follow this statement, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was making more disciples. The tension was between Christ and the Pharisees. The tension was with the Pharisees not appreciating the fact that people were beginning to see the teaching not only of John prior to Christ, but Christ himself, and was gaining a following. So the, the Pharisees didn't like the following Christ was gaining, and there was tension between Christ and the Pharisees. So Jesus at this time said, I probably need to skip town for a little bit, let, let things cool off. Because that, that begins in chapter 1, where John the Baptist publicly testified to the Messiahship of Christ to a delegation that was sent to him by the Pharisees. So John has said, Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Messiah. The Pharisees took exception to that. It continues in chapter 2, where Christ went to the temple in Jerusalem during the celebration of the Passover and made quite a scene by literally cleaning house and turning the place upside down. That's not the normal way to win friends and influence people. In chapter 3, Christ challenged the ignorance of the religious leaders, of the Pharisees, during a personal conversation with one of their members. And also in chapter 3, John again publicly proclaimed the Messiahship of Christ. So we come to chapter 4, the Pharisees didn't appreciate the work of Christ. Christ decides to separate himself. Another layer of drama is added when we get to this point in chapter 4. They had to pass through Samaria. At that time, no self-respecting Jew 
would go through Samaria. No self-respecting Jew would be caught dead in Samaria. See, the Samaritans were descendants of, of intermarriage between Jews of the north who intermarried during their captivity, breaking a significant Old Testament law given not to marry outside of Israel. So the Jews had a chip on their shoulder against the Samaritans for breaking that command. So the Samaritans, as an ethnic culture, then were, were a mixed, uh, mixed race, um, almost to the point where the Jews would, would deridingly refer to them as half-breeds. Also, the Samaritans had a religious system very similar to that of Israel, following many of the same laws and practices. However, they had set up another spot of worship uh, in competition with that in Jerusalem. So by racial, by ethnic, by almost tribal level, as well as religious level, there is this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So while Samaria was, or this, this path from the south, where Christ was up to Gal in the north, was the most natural, shortest geographical route. Culturally, ethnically, socially, religiously, politically, it was the worst route to take. So basically, the, the rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans is worse than maybe that of, what is it, Nebraska and Iowa? Or Nebraska and maybe Wisconsin a little bit? It was worse than that. And Christ said, I have to go through Samaria. Nobody, no Jew ever had to go through Samaria. So there's tension on two levels as Christ initiates this trip, leaving Jerusalem, leaving the, the uh, tension he was facing with the Pharisees, but also to purposefully go through Samaria. And we'll see the fruit of that trip, though. So let's come back to chapter 4, and let's go back to verse 7. So there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And we'll come back to this detour later. So verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you... Being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So this is where my title for this section of excuses, excuses comes into play. We'll see that the Samaritan woman hid behind a series of walls of excuses as Christ confronts her with the reality of her spiritual condition. Her first excuse, her excuse number one is a cultural excuse in verse 9. Why are you talking to me? Not only are you a Jew, but you're a male. So on so many levels, this was politically incorrect. So he comes just asks for a drink. And she says, why are you talking to me? 
just immediately cultural barrier, cultural wall that she's throwing up. What right do you have to talk to me? What right do you have to engage me in conversation? Now, I don't know if you faced, in your path to faith in Christ, if you faced any of these same excuses. If others that you know and live and work with um, face these same excuses as well. So you might see yourself, you might see others on a condition similar to the Samaritan woman as we work through this passage. So her first excuse was cultural in verse 9. What right do you have to talk to me? Her second excuse was practical. Verses 11 and 12, how could you have anything to offer me? The well is deep, you have no way to draw water, but yet you're offering me, there, there's no way. You just asked me for what, a drink, now you're offering something to me, but you have no tools from which to offer me anything. Okay, so she's throwing up this practical excuse, this would never work out on so many levels, this couldn't work. I don't need you because you have nothing to offer. I'm the one here at the well with the tools to draw water with. Her third excuse was physical in verse 15, when she basically says, I'm in as long as it's convenient and fulfilling to me. I'm buying as long as it meets what I'd like, and it's packaged how I want it. I want to be satisfied was her bottom line, and as long as that would happen, she was good with it. We get clear clarity on her heart's desire. It was temporal satisfaction. I don't think we know anybody like that among us in life today. Okay, she was looking for physical fulfillment. I don't want to be thirsty, so I'll take it. If I'm not going to thirst again, I'm in. I don't want to be thirsty. But she was also looking for physical convenience. I don't want to have to work anymore. So as long as I'm never thirsty and I don't have to come and draw water, and I don't have to come up here to this well every day. Again, she's there at noon, heat of the day. So she's looking for physical fulfillment and physical convenience. Do we know people that look to religion, that look to spirituality, that look to church, that maybe even look to Christ in that way? They're looking just for, to make life easier. I want a big ejection button from my trouble, from my frustration, from my hurt. And through that path, she missed what Christ was telling her. In verse 10, he refers to the gift of God, and she missed that. Again, in verse 10, he talks about living water. And then in verse 14, he talks about eternal life. She missed that plane completely because she was stuck in trivial things. She was fixated on these simple, trivial things. But Christ doesn't leave her hanging there. And then the path to the resolution of her heart need, her true heart need, not just her desire to have water and desire not to have to uh, come to, to the well to draw water again, he doesn't leave her hanging there, but he switches gears. In verse 16, he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. You have said this truly. Talk about awkward. Okay, to call her out like that. So her fourth excuse is a relational excuse. In verse 17, you know, in today's uh, terminology, we say she, she would reply, I've been told I have relationship or commitment issues. When he asks her about her family status, her relationship status is complicated. 
She's been married five times, now living with man number six. So far, she has, for some odd reason, we don't know the details, but for some reason, she had not been fulfilled with marriage and or family. And this may explain while she was going to the well at noon, in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, because her own peers, the women of the village, had rejected her as well. Rather than going in the morning in the cool to get the water for the day, which is when everybody else was there. So at some level, even she felt either um, rejection or was just trying to avoid her own peer group. So her relationship, um, her heart's desire for connection, for fellowship, for relationship, was not there, was not fulfilled. So after that real awkward twist, when her own personal life is called out, she tries to take another tack and, and, and move, move out with another excuse by gaining control of the conversation with a brilliant deduction. In verse 19, she says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Her fifth excuse was a spiritual or a religious excuse. Verse 19, she says, You're a prophet. Let me ask you a controversial question to distract from the conversation we were just having, this awkward conversation that has gotten even more awkward and more personal as Christ moved in, not just uh, about the concept of water and, and the cultural social barriers, but he starts talking about who she is as a person. She tries to dodge that with, by asking a controversial question, not one that wasn't worth addressing, but again, she's missing the point so far. And it's interesting to note that Christ wasn't buying it. Christ wasn't distracted by her smokescreen. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Sounds like uh, Paul had a statement like that later on in the New Testament. Those who are worshiping the unknown God. But Christ says, You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming... And now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The location of worship was something that would need to be addressed, yes. She's saying, is it here where the Samaritans say, or is it really in Jerusalem where the Jews say? Christ says that is an important issue, but that's not the first issue. The first issue is the nature of your worship and the target or the audience of your worship. So she does what any one of us would normally do when presented like this. She tries another excuse, pulls another one out of the hat. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Her sixth excuse was a chronological. She punted. She was stalling for time. I'll deal with this. I'll sort this out when the Messiah comes. He'll, he'll, he'll straighten this out for all of us. So I'm going to wait until that time to deal with this. And Christ has just said there's an hour coming and it's here now. She references the Messiah, and he says, I who am talking to you right now, I'm he. I am the Messiah. He identifies himself to her. 
So after this moment, such a poignant moment, where we finally come to the bottom line, Christ has worked through each of these six excuses, her cultural, her relational, kind of the um, spiritual and chronological excuses that she's laid out there. He gets to the point of her heart. He gets to the point of identifying who he is as the Messiah, the one she just said, when he gets here, then we'll, we'll pause and we'll sort this out. At this poignant moment, our good friend Peter and the rest of the disciples show up, kind of spoiling the moment. At this point, verse 27, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So they were more amazed at the fact that he was talking to a woman rather than what does she need? No, they're young in their walk as well. They're, they're maturing uh, in their faith. They're maturing in the purposes of Christ. So they show up with lunch, and that's what it's all about. And why is he talking to her and, instead of asking, can we help you or do you have a need? Because they would have recognized it was odd for her to be at the well at noon also. So verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So in this interim, when she, the disciples come back with lunch, that conversation is interrupted at the most beautiful and poignant spot. She leaves talks to men in the village, and they're coming back. In that interim, in, that, in, that, in the meantime there, Christ shifts his focus to the disciples. And we'll see that she, the Samaritan woman, wasn't the only one trapped in trivial details. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know of. So the disciples were saying to one another, instead of asking him, would you explain that? What did you mean by that? No, they start talking amongst themselves. No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Did, did somebody beat us back? Why is Christ talking about food that he's already eating? Instead of asking him, they ask each other. Mistake number one. Jesus said to him, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So oversimplified, this segment of teaching that Christ is giving to the disciples, and he's giving to us today as we read this passage. There's a bigger purpose than meeting people's physical needs. The woman at the well was asking about water that she would not ever get thirsty again, or, or a provision that she'd never have to work again. Physical fulfillment and physical convenience. The disciples were still hung up on lunch, which is not a bad thing to be hung up on. There's a bigger purpose than meeting people's physical needs. That may be a part of it, and it may be a bridge to meeting spiritual needs. The second thing he was teaching them, the second thing he's teaching us, look beyond the obvious 
and see the needs around you. The third thing, he was telling them that God has been setting the stage for redemption for some time. And now it's time to be uh, seeing fulfillment of that. And then the fourth thing, that ministry, he's telling these disciples, that, that, that core group around him, that ministry is a team effort and it's time to come off the bench. He's instructing them to engage in uh, representing God's redemptive work. So after that little sidebar, after, after that uh, almost a rabbit trail of discipling the disciples, verse 39, And from the city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. And all, he, all the passage records is her relationship history. Five husbands and is living with a man that's not her husband. That detail that he had no human business knowing, she translates into, he tells me all things that I have ever done. He knows everything about me. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, verse 40, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So this transformation is a perfect example of why the book of John was written. Again, in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So through this personal confrontation with the person and work of Christ, this Samaritan woman and many from her community broke free from that trivial trap that they were locked in and began to focus on the eternal. So as Christ represented himself to her that day, is then Christ represented to the disciples a fuller picture of God's redemptive work pre-death, burial, and resurrection. We see the Samaritan woman's faith and many from that village uh, come to faith. So as we think of Christ's presentation of himself to her and her faith, And in the testimony of the community saying, we don't believe just because you told us this. Now we've seen him, and we've spent two days with him. And now we believe for ourselves because of his word directly to us. We see their conversion, and we see their testimony recorded. And because of that, their faith, what they could celebrate in knowing who Christ was, and knowing his purpose as Messiah, again, pre-cross, then we can read from this today and take, uh, take encouragement, take instruction on the fuller purpose and work of Christ. And in this instance, see in ourselves a celebration of the sacrifice that Christ provided. So they came to Christ, these Samaritans came to Christ looking for physical fulfillment, looking for physical convenience, Uh, through this one interaction with the woman. But Christ's graciousness, 
His mercy, His love, His patience, demonstrating through excuse after excuse after excuse, wall after wall after wall that she tried to build to to, to distance herself from Christ in that early part of the conversation. But because of Christ's love and mercy, He waded through all that, continuing to reveal Himself step by step until she saw Him for who He was. So when John writes, this book was written so that you may know Christ and knowing you can believe and in believing you have life in his name. So I'll transition out for the men that are going to come and serve that we can celebrate together uh, in a tangible way uh, the representation of his body and his blood that he sacrificed in providing uh, the redemption and providing that forgiveness for us. Uh, So I will close this time in prayer and then have the men that are going to come lead and I will continue in this layer of worship. Father, we're grateful for your word today. We're grateful for John chapter 4 and this account of the Samaritan woman. For her honesty, Lord, but also for your faithfulness in in breaking down the human barriers uh, that we place uh, in front of ourselves and between you and us. So we're grateful for this account and this testimony We're grateful for the power of your word. We would ask now, as we celebrate your sacrifice, that our hearts would be humble before you and that our lives would reflect uh, your character and purposes to the world around us. And we pray this uh, because of the work of Christ. Amen.